The sermon passage this morning is the last three verses of the book of Philippians, this letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. That's our sermon passage. You would be forgiven if you thought that because the passage was only three verses long that the sermon would be commensurately short. But I've got to tell you, this is an eight-pager with very narrow margins. <laughs> if it's too long for your tastes, blame the Lord. <laughs> not, no, I'm joking, but it, it, no, it's a, it's a, I was surprised, to be honest, at the, how things ended up. Philippians 4, uh, 21 to 23, that's our sermon passage. Our scripture reading, which we'll read first, is uh, from Numbers chapter 6. In your bulletins, I have... Uh, Uh, 24 to 26. We'll actually begin reading uh, at verse 22 to help uh, set the context a little bit further. So our scripture reading, Numbers 6, 22 to 26. I'm sorry, let's go to 27. I apologize. And then our sermon passage is Philippians 4, 21 to 23. Brothers and sisters, I remind you that this is the very word of God. If you wish to hear the Lord's voice, if you want to hear Him speaking to you, look no further than God's Word. He is speaking to you now. So please, give your full attention to the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put My name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Now turning to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This ends the reading of God's most holy, perfect, infallible, inspired word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your benediction, for your good word pronounced over us, showering down blessings upon us. We thank you, dear Lord, that you are the father of all good things and that you give every good gift to your children. And your word, O Lord, is a most precious gift to us. We pray that by your Spirit we would have ears to hear. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us because we confess to you that we are weak, that our minds are easily distracted, our thoughts wander off and stray far from the word that we are hearing preached. So please help us, O Lord. Help us to give ear unto your word as it's being preached and help us to gain understanding. We pray for those who hear. We pray for the one who preaches. May you give him unction. May you give him ability. Lord, we pray that while your word is being preached, you will be exalted. We pray, O Lord, that we will worship you, even during the preaching of your most holy word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now you may remember, perhaps some of you over the last week, knowing that the final few verses of the letter of Philippians was coming up in, in the sermon passage today, you, you might have gone ahead and reread the whole letter. It's very brief. It doesn't take too long. If you haven't done so, you may wish to do so this afternoon, not to tell you what to do, but just a suggestion. It might take you uh, 15 minutes to read these four chapters. But you may remember that Paul began his letter to the Philippians with what has become known as an, an apostolic salutation back in chapter 1, verse 2. He says there, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear this salutation, this greeting, which is what it is. You hear it every single week in the worship service. It's God's greeting to you. And now in our passage this morning, Paul closes the letter with another salutation, a greeting. Well, technically, there are three greetings in this, these last few verses of uh, chapter 4 of the book of Philippians. He gives them three final greetings. A greeting from himself, that's the first one. A greeting from the brothers who are with him. And then a greeting from all the saints, especially those from Caesar's household. And then in the last verse, his final words to uh, those uh, people uh, in Philippi are a benediction. Literally, the word means a good word. Bene, good diction. Word. We often call it a word of blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now these are quite possibly the last words that the people in Philippi, these beloved people, whom Paul had known now for many years. The first, some of them were the first converts on European soil under Paul's uh, missionary ministry, his apostolic ministry. These may very well be the final words that they will ever hear from this apostle. The last words that they will hear from him before he is executed. And this letter as a whole, it has been chock full of good words. It has some of the most magnificent language describing the humiliation of the Son of God in chapter 2 found anywhere in Scripture. When you think about those, that passage from chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, and the language that Paul uses there to describe Christ's humiliation, his coming down to us, his becoming, uh, being made man. Now, these last few verses, though seemingly mundane, are no less good words than any of the rest found in this letter. Now, the first thing that Paul writes in verse 21 is a command to the Philippians. The, uh, the word there, the verb, is in uh, the imperative. Greet. Greet each other. He's giving this command most likely to the leadership, the elders and the deacons that he addressed all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, to give his greetings to every saint in Christ Jesus. So to put it plainly, Paul is telling the leadership of the church to greet every saint in Christ Jesus on his behalf, uh, for them to give vicarious salutations to the Philippians. Now there's a phrase for you you can throw around uh, tomorrow uh, in, in class or sometime this week in conversation with your friends. Vicarious salutations. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul addressed the letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Here his instruction to the leaders is to greet every saint. In our passage in chapter 4, every saint. In other words, he wants to make sure that each and every one of the members of the church at Philippi receives his personal greeting. Now, why is this important? Why, why is Paul being so specific here to make sure that these elders in Philippi, the deacons in Philippi, to make sure that they convey to every single member of that church his personal greeting? 
What had gone on? What was one of the issues that Paul had addressed in this letter? This division between the two women, Yodia and Syntyche. And we saw when we were, were looking at that passage earlier in chapter 4 that, that Paul had a great concern that, that that disagreement between those two might result in division in the church. That the church might divide along partisan lines. One of the party of Euodia, one of the party of Syntyche, and Paul did not want this to happen. And so he wants to make sure that each and every one of the people, the saints in Philippi, receive his personal greeting, including Euodia and Syntyche. In the words of one commentator, the singular saint, instead of saints, as it is in chapter 1, verse 1, might be chosen to indicate Paul's concern for each Philippian to equal degree and to avoid partiality. Now, Euodia and Syntyche, they might have felt a sting. They probably did feel the sting of his words back in chapter 4, verse 2, where he entreated the two of them to agree in the Lord. They were being called out, named in this letter. One of the few people, few, few personal names, few, few uh, people who are individually, specifically identified in this letter. And he calls them out and he tells them to agree in the Lord. And so most likely they felt the sting of that. And perhaps a bit of shame. And so, like a father with his children, Paul wants these two women to know by ensuring that they are personally greeted that though he had to correct them, he still loves them. He doesn't love them any more or any less than any other brother or sister in that church. People disagree. Even Christians, sometimes especially Christians. Paul once again calls the members of the Philippian church saints. Now, we spoke about this when we... Uh, first began this series in February, but as a refresher, saint means holy one, and holy one means one who is set apart and is therefore being made holy. If you are a saint, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. If you're a saint, you've been set apart, you've been called out from the world, but, but even more, you're being made holy. You've had this definitive break from sin, and now the Holy Spirit's working in you to put to death that sin that remains. Paul makes it clear here in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 21, just as he did in chapter 1, verse 1, that, though, that those who are called saints are saints. Why? Because they are in Christ Jesus. It is precisely because of the fact that they are united to Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection that they can be designated as holy ones. Their status as saints is utterly dependent, not upon good works that they have done in this life, but because of the good work of Jesus Christ that he has done on their behalf. To be designated a saint, therefore, is a privilege of everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in faith. If you truly believe in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You are a holy one. You've received God's spirit. He dwells in your hearts and He is working in you. He is sanctifying you. He is perfecting you each and every day as you walk along this pilgrim path. A person is not designated a saint years after their death at the conclusion of an investigation to determine whether or not they were worthy of the title. You don't have to do a miracle that can be verified by some team of investigators years later in order to be called a saint. You simply have to have the miracle of regeneration done in you by the Holy Spirit. That means that you're in Christ. That makes you a saint. So Paul 
has given his personal greeting to every saint in Christ Jesus. And then in the second half of verse 21, he writes, the brothers who are with me greet you. Now, he's already mentioned the brothers once before, back in chapter 1, verse 14, where he wrote there, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, presumably, Paul is speaking about the same group of brothers here. We don't know for sure. Uh, but the fact that he doesn't go into any detail, the fact that he doesn't, he doesn't go into any description, it's, it's, it's safe to, to presume, safe to assume that these are probably the same two, group of, of, of two groups of men, the same group of men, the brothers. In, in both cases, it's assumed that the Philippians know who Paul is talking about. Paul doesn't use any words that identify the brothers, so he knows that they know who the brothers are. Now, it may be that he has made reference to these brothers in other correspondence with the Philippians, correspondence that we don't have, that's been lost uh, to history. It may be that the brothers that he's referencing here are directly connected to the church at Philippi. Either way, it seems that they know one another. These are brothers who, according to chapter 1, verse 14, were emboldened to preach Christ without fear because they had seen how Paul had used, God had used Paul's imprisonment to spread the gospel. The way that Paul uses the term brothers indicates that these men possibly were co-workers with Paul in the ministry. And now they too, these brothers, they're sending their greetings to the Philippians. They want to get their greetings in before the letter is sealed up and shipped off, probably with Epaphroditus as he returns to his brothers and sisters in Philippi. In verse 22, we have the third and final greeting of, uh, to the saints at Philippi. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, this greeting to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, from all the saints uh, with Paul in Rome, th- this is a greeting to all the saints from all the saints. Paul is moving out in concentrically larger circles. He- he's moving from himself uh, to the brothers and now to all the saints and his greetings to uh, the Philippian brothers and sisters. Paul is giving a greeting from the church or churches in Rome to the church in Philippi. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul addresses that letter. Do you remember that Romans was written? Paul had never been to Rome at that point. He hadn't met the, the brothers and sisters in the churches in Rome at that point. But he, but he says there in chapter 1, verse 7 of, the, of the, the letter to the Romans, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And then at the end of the book of Romans, in chapter 15, verse 32, Paul expressed his desire to come to visit them so that by God's will, he says there, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And now... Paul's with them. We read at the end of the book of Acts that he was with them for more than two years and he's worshiping the Lord and he's talking to them about his faith in Jesus Christ and people are coming to know him. When he he wrote this letter, the letter to the Philippians, five to seven years later after he wrote the book of Romans, he was indeed there with them. Probably not under any circumstances he might have envisioned unless he happened to see himself in Rome under house arrest, chained to a praetorian guard. Those saints in Rome now wish to send their greetings to their brothers and sisters in Philippi, whom they probably don't even know. All they know is that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. All they know is that they are believers and they want to reach out to these Philippian brothers and sisters and tell them hello, greetings, salutations. 
And of the saints in Rome, there is a subset that Paul mentions specifically. Those who are in Caesar's household who especially want their greetings to the Philippians to be conveyed. Now, who are these people in Caesar's household? What does that mean? Well, this Greek word that's translated household, it's a fairly expansive term. It could be referring to members of Caesar's, and in this case, it would be Nero's family. It could be, but, but it, it likely is, is more general than that. It may include members of Nero's own family. That's a possibility. But it probably means includes or includes more than just uh, specific members of uh, Romans. Uh, I'm sorry, of Nero's blood uh, relatives. As we saw last week, Caesar, the Roman emperor, was considered to be the father of the fatherlands, and so to be in Caesar's household could also refer to soldiers, officials, slaves, and freed people who were in his service. So Paul most definitely is referring to people who were in some sort of service or other to Nero, possibly members of his family, when he says that those in Caesar's household sent their greetings. Now this mention of those in Caesar's household, it might in fact be an oblique reference back to chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where Paul told the Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It may well be, though we can only make a supposition here, that at least some of those in Caesar's household who sent their greetings came to know the Lord through Paul's ministry to them while he's chained to those guards. And that rotation of the guards that cycled through that house where Paul was under house arrest. He says that, that the whole Praetorian Guard has heard the gospel. This is a ministry, we might add, that was at least partially underwritten by the generous giving and support of the Philippian church. And so if that is the case then this makes it an even more personal greeting. If that is the case, then these Roman soldiers who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ because of Paul's ministry, they owe that in part to their Philippian brothers and sisters who were supporting him. And that makes this all the more endearing of a greeting, if that is the case. And again, we're, we're speculating. We recognize that. Sometimes speculating, speculation is dangerous. I think in this case, it's helpful. If this is the case, then perhaps Paul is letting the Philippians know in a way that is completely non-self-aggrandizing that their support and ministry to him has been bearing fruit. Paul is not one to brag about his prowess. He's not one to make notches in his belt about how many people he's led to the Lord. That's not his style. That's not the way he thinks. That's not the way he operates. But it would be well within uh, keeping with, with Paul's personality to just let the Philippians know, here's some tangible fruit of your giving. Here's the way the Lord has used your faithful support to me. These brothers who owe you, they send their greetings. Well, I've got an idea of, those who, uh, of who these greetings are from and of their importance to the Philippian Christians. But some of you may be sitting here and you might be struggling to get an, a sense of how this is important to you. I mean, it, it was nice and all for Paul to convey these greetings to the Philippians, but we've got Facebook, we've got Twitter, we've got Instagram. This is no big deal. Well, perhaps this might help you to gain some perspective. 
One of the important things that these couple of verses show us is that the church transcends boundaries. Political boundaries, natural boundaries, ethnic boundaries, even the boundary of time because we're reading these greetings today. And we can read them as if Paul is greeting us. And these Roman Christians are greeting us. Paul knew full well that this, re- that this letter was going to get circulated among the churches. He knew that it wouldn't stay there with the Philippians. They would get it and they would copy it and they would send it out. The church is not bound to one physical location the way that the temple in Jerusalem was. Jerusalem became the center of Judaism because of the temple. We are not so bound. When Christianity is functioning properly, there is no priority placed on one earthly location over another. There is no holy ground here and not there. Rome is no better than Bedford, Texas, as far as the church is concerned. And to press it even further, as far as the church is concerned, Bedford, Texas is no better than Mbali, Uganda, or Alice Springs, Australia. Just because Christians aren't member of our church and our denomination doesn't mean that we have no fellowship with them. And we in the OPC, we're, we, we parse things out so carefully and so precisely. And we have to be very careful that in our parsing out of our doctrines, we don't exclude those who belong to the body of Jesus Christ, even though they're not a, they're not a part of, of this expression, this branch of the body, the tree. Whether Baptist or Anglican or broadly evangelical, everyone who calls on the Lord Jesus Christ in true faith is a brother or a sister in Christ. And those of us who were at that banquet last night, we saw it. And we experienced it. And we got called out as being Presbyterians. (laughs) These voices giving greetings from the past, they also remind us that the church has existed in every age. And the church in 2018 is no better than the church in Rome in AD 63, around the time that Paul wrote this letter. We can learn from our elders in the faith who came before us. They laid the groundwork, and we are reaping the benefits. In a sense, God has fulfilled for us the promise that he made with Israel when he promised them the land of Canaan, and he told them that they would inhabit the cities that they did not build, and they would harvest crops that they did not plant. We are the beneficiaries of our forefathers' faith, of those who were in Christ's church 2,000 years ago, and even further back than that. This passage shows us that the church is bigger and less bound to time or to any particular place or culture than it appears to us today. This passage also, I think, Perhaps some of you may want to contend with me, but just don't do it after the service today, maybe later on this week. This passage, I think, by extension, helps to remind us that just as the church isn't bound to a particular location on earth or to a particular, location, or a particular time in earth's history, it's also not bound to earth at all. We are not a part of an earth-bound church. The church, in a sense, is alien to the earth, this fallen earth that is under the curse. The church, unlike any other earthly institution, is eternal. It exists in heaven. Our fathers and our mothers in the faith, 
they are united in their eternal worship of the Most High God. And on the Lord's Day, when we assemble for worship, we get a brief taste of that heavenly assembly, of that heavenly worship. I like to think that while the saints in heaven are worshiping God before His throne in heaven, we saints down here on earth on the Lord's Day in our assemblies are worshiping God right along with them. And by God's Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, He transports us to heaven. We get a taste of of that heavenly worship. It's unlike anything you experience throughout the week. This passage and these greetings that Paul sends to the Philippians, they serve as reminders of the transcendent nature of the church. And we can rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ builds and preserves His church in every place and every time. And He makes that promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. This is Christ's church here on earth. It's Christ's church in heaven. It, we belong to him. In verse 23, the final verse of this brief letter, Paul writes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, as we mentioned, this is Paul's benediction to the Philippians, his good word, his blessing to them. Benedictions or blessings are important enough for God's people that Yahweh commanded Aaron to pronounce a specific blessing over Israel. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, God tells Moses, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them. And then he gives them the, the precise language, the wording that, they are to, that, that these, these Aaron and his sons are to pronounce. You are to say, say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you. And give you peace. And one commentator uh, on this passage made note of the fact that if you you take the the three, in that ironic blessing, which is what it's come to be known, three times the word Yahweh is used. You'll see it in your English Bibles in small caps, the Lord. That's, That's the word that is often used in English translations for Yahweh. If you take the three uses of Yahweh out, in the Hebrew... There are 12 words in that blessing. One word for each tribe of God's people, His Old Testament church. And then in Numbers chapter 6, verse 27, right after the Aaronic blessing, we read this earlier, God says, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. In the blessing, in the benediction, as it is properly understood, God is putting His name on you. He's putting it on you. In this particular blessing, in number six, God is promising to Israel that their hope of seeing him face to face, what is known as the beatific vision, that it will be fulfilled. They will see him face to face. This takes place, of course, after the Exodus, after Mount Sinai, after this point where Moses begs the Lord, he begs Yahweh to let him see his face, and Yahweh will not let him. Moses could not stand in the presence and and have the full glory uh, of God's face revealed to him. But in number six, God's people get this promise that they will look upon the face of God in a way that Moses could not. 
Now Paul's blessing in Philippians 4.23, it's a little different, of course, than the blessing in number 6, but no less profound. Paul is pronouncing over the Philippians the hope and expectation that the grace of Christ Jesus would be with their spirit. Grace, as one commentator puts it, indicates the complete blessing and beneficence of God. And so if that's the case, if this commentator is right, then Paul is saying in one word, grace, what God commanded Aaron and his sons to say in 12. Paul says the Lord Jesus Christ in this benediction. The use of the word Lord in such close proximity to the word Caesar surely would not have happened by accident. Paul knows what he's doing. The Holy Spirit who had borne Paul up, knew what he was doing. Nero may be Caesar, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And that harkens back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, which says there, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Christ Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. Even Nero will bow one day in subjection to his king, and he will be judged according to his works and his sins against God's people. Now, this word that's translated your at the end of verse 23, it's in the plural. You can't necessarily gather that from your English translations. Again, y'all would be really helpful here. The word translated your, it's in the plural, but the word for spirit is in the singular. Paul is speaking to all of the Philippians. He's pronouncing this blessing upon them all, but he's speaking to them as if they have one singular spirit. Now, why would Paul be phrasing things that way? I think we can think of a couple of reasons. Well, the church is marked both by diversity, but also by unity. The church is made up of the many, but also the one. The church is made up of constituent parts that are all part of one body. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul pleaded with the Philippians. He says there, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, I don't think that there is any doubt that Paul is making a reference to that plea in chapter 1, verse 27, here in chapter 4, verse 23. And in this, he echoes Jesus' high priestly prayer when Jesus says in John chapter 17, 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Paul is emphasizing the fact that though there has been this dispute, that though there is, they're on the precipice of di- division, that they are one in spirit. Now this benediction here at the end of the, Philippian, the letter to the Philippians, notice that it is not a request. Paul isn't saying, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul is telling them that it is. This is a statement of fact. Paul is just saying, this is the way it is. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The benediction 
all benedictions in God's word. They are both a telling, uh, telling God's people of the blessing God gives them and the conferring of that blessing upon them at the same time. The benediction is a declaration to God's people that they are in a state of blessing by virtue of being God's people. And because it isn't a prayer requesting God's blessing, but a pronouncement of blessing conferred, it's appropriate when when the blessing, when the benediction is pronounced at the end of the service, it's appropriate not to close your eyes and not to bow your heads. This is not a prayer. It's appropriate to keep your eyes open during the benediction. With your heads held high, your faces up. Why? Because in that benediction, you are expecting to see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are waiting expectantly for Him to appear. By all means, don't look at me in the benediction. Look for the Lord. When you look up, you are expressing the hope that Jesus Christ is coming back. The certainty. You know He's returning. And if He returns on the Lord's Day, at the end of our worship service, then all the better. We're already halfway in heaven as it is. And He'll take us the rest of the way. As R.C. Sproul puts it in Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, our supreme longing is to experience the beatific vision, to see God face to face. The benediction, both in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, but also in all of the benedictions of the New Testament, these benedictions express the hope that the believer will one day look upon the face of God. And this is possible why. This is possible how. It's possible because of what Paul says at the end of verse 23 in our passage, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Why is Numbers 6, 24 to 26 true for you? Because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because of His grace that has been given to us, though we do not deserve it at all, that we will with absolute certainty lift up our faces and see the Lord doing that which is now impossible for us because of our sin. Looking upon His face with unshielded eyes, there will be no veil in front of the Lord as there was a veil in front of Moses' face. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in Him, even though you still sin every single day, even though you struggle, even though you're tempted, even though you fall, if you believe in Jesus Christ, this pronouncement is for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance toward you and give you peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that even though we do not now see you, we don't yet see you, O Lord. We believe in you.
We trust in you. We have that hope of the resurrection of the dead and of enjoying eternal glory with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and with all of those, our loved ones who have gone on before us. Our gracious God, now in this time of sorrow, we, we feel that. We, we need it more and more. We want it more and more. We want to be with you. We thank you, dear Lord, that you give us tastes of that beatific vision each week. That you give us the assurance that we will, with absolute certainty, look upon your face. Oh Lord, we pray that you would sustain us until that day. We do pray that you would bless us and keep us. We struggle. We have doubts. We're unsure sometimes of whether or not we are in Christ Jesus, whether we truly believe in him. We're knocked down and battered by the world and by all of these effects of sin. Lord, we pray that we would keep ever before our eyes your glorious benediction, your good word. We pray, dear Lord, that you would sustain us on our pilgrimage. Even as you sustained Paul. Even as you sustained the Philippian brothers and sisters. Our brothers and sisters. We pray, O Lord, that you would sustain us. We pray this in Christ's precious, perfect name. Amen.